louder. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Lights, Camera, Exploitation, your guide to exploitive cinema. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, and joining me as always, your doppelganger, kangabanger, friend down under, Brody Kane. Howdy, howdy, motherfuckers. And the man slicker than cum on a gold tooth, Mr. Slick Nick. How are y'all doing this afternoon? We have a doozy of an episode for you today, but first, it's time for your slice of life. Nick, start us off. Oh, well, I have had a busy week. I have been to two separate weddings in one week, and I am tired as hell. Uh, <laughs> both very nice, though, um, both for uh, just some good friends and everything. So good good week overall. Um, not a whole lot really outside of it, mostly just working, uh, getting stuff repaired around the apartment because this place is, for some reason, deciding to fall apart uh, over the course of one week. Um, but yeah, uh, really, not not a whole lot. Um, Brody, what about you? Well, 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 let me fucking see here. I had a quite boring week this week at work. Um, just trying to really think what I've fucking done, to be honest. Oh, all right, I've got a quick little story for you. So I was at work, washed me car, sorry, on the Sunday. Come Monday, I come into work, this fuckhead... Uh, comes in with a leaf blower. Uh, there's two of them walking oh, around the yard blowing oh shit. No. So, yeah, anyway, I'm about to fucking go do a job. I get halfway out the gate and I look over at my car and it's fucking orange. And I'm like, that's weird. It's a blue fucking car. Why the fuck is it orange? So I'm on a fucking warpath because it's Monday morning. That's the last shit I want to yeah. fucking see. Yeah. So I am just fucking walking around the shop trying to find these two dickheads. <laughs> Couldn't find them. Sure enough, I walk over to their vehicle and they're sitting in there. I was going to be civil and go, look, can you please just blow the shit off, whatever. Anyway, I approach them, I knock on the door, they open up, and this motherfucker is like, what? I'm like, you see that car over there? It once was blue, now it's orange. What are you going to do to fucking fix the problem? And he goes, don't get fucking upset with me. And I said, get out of the fucking vehicle now. Grab your leaf blow and blow all the fucking dirt off it. And he just looked at me like he didn't know what to fucking say or do. And I said, "Do just, just fucking solve, just fix the fucking problem, mate. I am fucking over this bullshit." Anyway, got him a Ute and left. Come back. He he done my vehicle. He blew all the shit off mine, but the other two next to me had were just covered in dirt. What a dick. <laughs> so yeah, just a mad fuckwit. And um, my boss was saying how he had a running with him prior to that. But other than that, I was actually really jacked up for the rest of the day, so it was kind of good. <laughs> getting um, but, yeah, no, other than that, boring week as always. But, yeah, what about you, Mr. Bowser? Well- <laughs> Perfectly done. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say every week, podcast there, podcast here, podcast everywhere. But I ordered some films today. I ordered Dennis Hopper's Colors and Walter Hill's yeah, yeah. Trespass. Those are on the way. Then I ordered some things from Vincent, their partner label stuff. But I'll let you know when that stuff gets here because I get way too anxious waiting for them packages. But the comic 
is almost done. I know I've been saying it for months now, but literally at the point of submitting it to the people. So super excited. We'll update you guys as things culminate with the comic book. But I'm super excited about that. And I'm super excited about this week's film because it's my pick. And this week's pick is The Great Silence from 1968. Once my husband told me of this man, he avenges our wrongs. They call him silence, because wherever he goes, the silence of death follows. Tell me something, old-timer. Are we within the jurisdiction of Snow Hill County? Yep. You can rest or hang anyone you want. Thanks a lot. Look who's the man that you want. He killed my husband. How much you want for him? Say, boy, you're trying to force me to draw, ain't you? But I'm not losing my temper of that, I'm sure. Have you forgotten who he is? He picks a fight when somebody draws it. He shoots him. But you're the man he's here to get. Also called Il Grande Silencio. And that is directed by Sergio Corbucci. You may know him as he's also done Django in 1966, The Mercenary in 1968, The Specialists in 1969, and Campo in 1970. Writers, Vittoriano Petrilli, Mario Amendola, Bruno Corbucci, and Sergio Corbucci. Cinematographer, Silviano Ippoliti, who did Star Pilot in 1966, Caligula in 1979, and Miranda in 1985. Music by Ennio Morricone, who did The Untouchables in 1987, The Stendhal Syndrome in 1996 for Argento, and The Hateful Eight in 2015 for Tarantino. Costume design, Enrico Job, who worked on Andy Warhol's Flesh for Frankenstein 1973, actually Paul Morrissey's, Carmen in 1984, and The Nymph in 1996. Art direction, Ricardo Domenci, who worked on The Whip in the Body in 1963, and The Crows Will Dig Your Grave in 1971, which sounds like a really cool name, and The Suspicious Death of a Minor in 1975, which is a giallo Poliziotesky hybrid film. Highly recommend. Ooh. Special effects, Eros Bakakuchi, who worked on Hercules the Invincible in 1964, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in 1966, and Once Upon a Time in the West in 1968. Last, but certainly not leastly, editing by... Amido Salfa, who worked on Nostalgia in 1983 with Tarkovsky, The Story of Boys and Girls in 1989. Pretty cool. We got the same editor as the guy who did something for Tarkovsky. Mm-hmm. That is pretty cool, actually. Is it starring Jean-Lise Trigonot as Gordon, or Silence, who starred in 17th Heaven in 1966, Z in 1969, and Amour in 2012. Klaus Kinski as Tigra or Loco, who starred in Man, Pride, and Vengeance in 1967, Aguirre, The Wrath of God in 1972, and Venom in 1981. Check out our Klaus Kinski special. Mm-hmm. Frank Wolf. Treat yourself. Yes. <laughs> All hail Kinski. Uh... <laughs> 
Frank Wolf as Sheriff Gideon Burnett, who starred in One Dollar Too Many in 1968, I Am Sartana, Your Angel of Death in 1969, and Death Walks on High Heels in 1971, a Jallo. Luigi Pastilli as Henry Pollicott, for a few dollars more in 1965, The Sweet Body of Deborah in 1968, and The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire in 1971. I'm sorry, these Jallo names kill me. Iguana with the Tongue of Fire is amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Argento, for making all those movie titles and then everybody else had to copy you <laughs> mario brega as martin who starred in a fistful of dollars in 1964 death knocks twice in 1969 and my name is nobody in 1973 carlo d'angelo as the governor of utah who starred in the land of pharaohs in 1955 sword of the conqueror in 1961 and secret agent super dragon in 1966 that's a hell of a title. <laughs> it's a jello too. <laughs> and last, but certainly not leastly, Marissa Merlini as Regina, who starred in The Pizza Triangle in 1970, The Sweet Ants in 1975, and My Wife Goes Back to School in 1981. If you boys don't mind, I'd like to read this week. Ooh, go ahead. Go ahead. On an unforgiving snow-swept frontier, a group of bloodthirsty bounty hunters led by the vicious Loco, played by Klaus Kinski, prey on a band of persecuted outlaws who have taken to the hills. As the price on each head is collected one by one, only a mute gunslinger named Silence stands between the innocent refugees and the greed and corruption that the bounty hunters represent. But in this harsh, brutal world, the lines between right and wrong are always clear, and good doesn't always triumph. Awards! Didn't find any information on that. Did you guys find anything on that? Not at all. It Wasn't was able to, to look at any. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, then, boys. Let's get physical. So, this week we have a disc release from Film Movement. Released June 5th, 2018. Runs 106 minutes. And it is not rated. I actually have the disc here. Boys, look at it. Bask in its glory. Look at that artwork. Uh, uh, stunning. You, look at the brim of Kinski's hat, and it's how it's... Let's say, and then, uh, yeah. and then Silence is sitting on top of the brim. <laughs> so cool. But it features some interesting bonus features. Cox on Corbucci. Alex Cox plays tribute to the maestro himself. Western Italian Style, a 1968 documentary, which most of our notes today are harvested from. Two alternate endings, which we'll talk about later. Uh, original Italian and English versions, which are important. Both are really well done. Ending the Silence, a new essay by film critic Simon Abrams, which is located inside the, book, uh, the disc here. It's an actually a pretty nice book. And the original theatrical trailer. And the cool thing about this disc is it actually has a quote from Tarantino, if you'd like me to read it for you, boys. Please do. Of course. Tarantino says, and I quote, Corbucci's West was the most violent, surreal, and pitiless landscape of any director in the history of the genre. And once we get into the story of this film, you'll understand that quote. A.O. Scott. Not wrong. Yeah. A.O. Scott of New York Times calls it raw, nasty, and blood-soaked, and Eric Maunder of the film journal International says, one of the most stylish and powerful spaghetti westerns. Says from the director of Django, as we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, Corbucci definitely has a flair and a flavor to his films that are not present in other directors. It's, I mean, it's definitely true. Uh, his is unflinching yeah. when it comes to just <laughs> using violence to get his points across. And we'll talk uh, about like, that more. Yes, 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 we shall. But let's move things over and let you guys take the reins. What'd you uh, dig up about this 
film. So, yes, a lot of the information I was able to dig up was from um, the special features on that disc. When Kabuchi is asked what the success is of directing his seventh Western film, he quotes, The main reason is that I believe we can create the atmosphere or a type of violence which is violence without reason, and often for the sake of violence. It's the same reason for the success of James Bond. It's not wrong. It's not wrong at all. Just do love a good yeah. James Bond movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Moonraker! <laughs> Golden Eye Man, that bungee jump off the dam at the beginning. Brody's eyes just roll back to his head because he knows Moonraker's shit. <laughs> but I used to watch it probably the most yes. uh, just because of Jaws. Yeah, there we go. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> usually when I hear most, uh, Moonraker sits like at about like the middle, mm-hmm. usually. Uh, it's just it's so absurd. Like, it's Bond in space. Yeah. I don't know how much. It is Bond in space. <laughs> <laughs> And the main villain uh, is definitely not Elon Musk. Uh, (laughs) Agent Bond. (laughs) You have to stop Elon Musk from launching Starlink. (laughs) (laughs) To Mars with love. (laughs) Alrighty. So, Corbucci is asked about the death and violence in the film, stating, Yes, I'm killing a lot of people. I've killed more people than Franco, but each time I feel it's more difficult for me. I've used revolvers and Winchesters. I've also killed with dynamite, gas, and fire. I cut many things. I've cut off ears and made my characters eat their own ears. In this film, I cut off thumbs. I don't make my actors eat them because they refuse. Unfortunately, I killed too many people. I'd like to make a film like what I did much earlier, uh, like when I was beginning. When I wasn't making westerns, I wouldn't shoot anybody. I love Corbucci after watching this documentary. He is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, you could definitely tell he was having fun yes. with the uh, interviewee. And, yeah. Um, uh, you guys so have... Wait, you guys have notes about the shaving cream, right? Fuck, I honestly think I forgot to put that in, but we can for, definitely mention that. For the snow? The main town, have like the town was not real snow. They used 40 tons of shaving cream. Yeah, that was right. Okay. <laughs> I... <laughs> you see him on set there, like, carefully lining the grass with shaving cream. It's pretty absurd. But we have Kabuchi talking about not recording any direct sound and arranging this for the actors. And he goes on to say, we usually use every nationality. We use French, Mexican, and American. It is often better for the actors to act than to speak. But, for example, the Frenchman would say, un, deux, trois. Then the American would say, oui. That means yes. But that doesn't mean anything. It's not important. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, Oh, yeah. So, uh, Corbucci then talks briefly about what he would like to do after this film, simply stating, another Western, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So, in his 2007 book... Uh, Dictionary of the Italian Western author Marco Gusti? Gusti? Uh, Giusti, I believe it is. Giusti, fuck. Notes a particular incident that occurred on set, which Claus Kinski, no surprise, approached fellow actor Frank Wolf and insulted him, saying, I don't want to work with a filthy Jew like you. I'm German and hate Jews. Wolf then had to be restrained as he attempted to strangle Kinski for the insult, afterwards refusing entirely to speak with Kinski outside of the shots where he was required to. Later on after the incident, Kinski claims to have only insulted Wolf to help him get into character. Oh, classic Kinski! <laughs> classic Kinski. Oh, I, I saw that. Again? 
and I had to include it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Again, lesson. go listen to our Klaus Kinski uh, <laughs> episode if you want to hear plenty of more stories like that. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> we actually spoke about this, TJ, didn't we? We were wondering if there was any confrontation with Kinski yes. on set, and there was nothing mentioned. So thank you, Nick, for that. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> I did what I usually do, which is I, I go and look for the books that are cited as the sources. Mm. And if I can get anything out of those, I will, uh, I will bring those <laughs> out. So <laughs> sometimes you get little gems like that. Yes. So yeah. French actor Jean-Louis Trignon is asked if he likes doing Westerns. He states, it's fun. I enjoy it. This is one of those tricks with a Western. You start with your head down. You catch a ray of light underneath your hat like this, in which he goes on to show the viewer how to basically do the howdy doody ma'am with his hat. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, great stuff. Uh, known for being a romantic actor, Jean Louise talks about playing in a Western. He quotes, I have done a lot of films that are serious or more intellectual, but it's fun to be in a film, which is the complete opposite to what I've been doing. He is then asked that being the hero, does he kill many people? His response is yes, maybe 30. <laughs> in the first two minutes of the film, I've already killed more professional killers who ambush me, and somehow I get them before they get me. And it goes on that way until I've killed about 40. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great scene. So we also have Jean-Louis talking about his character, and he goes on to say, I play the part of a mute. The audience won't realize it because during the first two-thirds of the film, there's no reason for him to speak. I like it because in most lessons, they talk too much and say nothing. When asked if it is an easy role to play, Jean-Louis states, yes, but not physically. It's difficult for me because I'm basically clumsy. I hurt myself all the time, uh, especially whenever I draw my gun. <laughs> Which is great Frenchies. for the character that he's playing, <laughs> being as good of a gunslinger as he is that the actor's hurting himself every time he pulls it out of the holster. So despite the unusual setting for the genre at the time, whereas most Western films would take place in the deserts of the South and Southwest United States, being filmed primarily in regions like Almeria, Spain, as fellow director Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy primarily was. The filming was still done in Europe, though taking place primarily in the Italian Dolomites, with additional cabins and set pieces being built on location specifically for the film. We had another film earlier on in one of the seasons that was also filmed in the Dolomites, and I can't remember the name right now and it was the one with the writer in the like hotel ah damn it i cannot remember what the hell the blow name up? of it was it was another it wasn't blow up it would have been very early on probably season one or two i could Rocker i couldn't figure hotel. out which one it was but it, it another one was filmed in this region too was it was it was it was it absolutely was it was one of the black and white italian films the possession the, yeah the possessed I, possessed i think oh, okay yeah it would have been the possessed fives the possessed the luigi bizzoni yes because that one was also filmed in the Italian Dolomites, because I remember looking at that for for that one, and then looking into where this was filmed, I was like, "Oh, it's like it's very close. It's probably just a, only a few miles away." Fucking a. I was going to say the cinema. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say in the uh, documentary that we harvest some of these notes from, they actually show the them trying to film some of the uh, footage of the cat, uh, like the the horse and the cart with the people in it, and it shows like the them also being on like a car, and then like them following it. 
forward while this snowstorm's going on, and they're like this, <laughs> this giant like film production, and then there's this cart right behind it, and just going up this small road really slowly. It's it's a really <laughs> cool shot. It, it's awesome. Just wanted to mention that with you guys. It's talking. just so much work. It's it's amazing. It's an interesting film because of the setting. So mm-hmm. so over at the cinema theek in 2020, uh, the alternate ending is discussed, and the producers of the Great Silence requested that Kabuchi to shoot an alternate ending, one where Sheriff Burnett. Frank Wolf was miraculously, or sorry, has miraculously survived the frozen lake and returns to aid silence um, and Pauline in their final confrontation with oh. Loco. Yes. So for further information on that, the disc from Film Movement has actually two alternate endings. So he did shoot the alternate ending, which is different as uh, Silence reveals that his burned hand, when they shoot it, it doesn't affect it because he has a metal like, gauntlet on it. Oh. So the guy comes from the frozen lake, the sheriff, comes from around the corner right as he's about to be shot for the last time and shoots Kinski, I think. And then Silence pulls his pistol out with a hand that you think is all fucked up from being shot and he shoots the other dudes and they, they save the day. And it's like, a, it's a happy ending and then the other alternate ending is they shoot him in the other hand and he's left there with both of his hands fucked up and then Kinski stares at him and then the screen just goes black that is such mm. a shit ending yeah I don't like the second one as much <laughs> but the uh, first one's really cool because the sheriff yeah. just comes out of between the fucking buildings just pow pow <laughs> comes in guns blazing yeah. well if I was him I'd be fucking pissed and then so- like <laughs> the way they reveal silence his hand being in the gauntlet is uh Pauline is that the girl he bangs yes uh, she re- yep. removes the, the bandage from his arm and it shows like the metal gauntlet. So it must be, have been on the hand that they shot and they thought that that would prevent him from grabbing his pistol. Ah, uh, okay. Yes. I always love when they do the like fake out thing was covered, like in Hard Boiled when he well, slips the... it's a super fucking Corbucci thing to mess up their hands. Remember in Django, they had Django's hand smashed at the end? Oh, yeah. And then he had to fire? Yeah. Like, they had him burned here. So, like, Corbucci just loves huh. doing this. And again, he mentions, like, hey, I, I blew up I blew off thumbs here because in Django, I cut off ears. It's like... <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, I got to do one or the other. I got to yes. do something. <laughs> Continue, boys. So, the soundtrack for The Great Silence is considered to be one of the best scores created by longtime composer Ennio Marconi. Ah. Morricone, as rather than using large sweeping melodies that would give the film a more heroic, positive feel, Morricone uses a dark, melancholic approach to the music that falls in line with the darker, grittier violence portrayed in the film. In a 2009 interview with the National Catholic Register, he is a very religious man, by the way, uh, Morricone explains his process for these design choices by stating, the music is at the service of the film. I am called to serve the film. If the film is violent, then I compose music for a violent film. If a film is about love, I work for a film of love. Perhaps there can be violent films in which there is sacredness or there are mystical elements to the violence, but I don't willingly look for these films. I try to strike a balance with the spirituality of the film, but the director doesn't always think the same way. So, there were plans on a remake. So, the North American distribution and intellectual rights to The Great Silence were acquired in 1969 by 20th Century Fox, and it has been suggested for years that Fox was interested in remaking the film as a vehicle for Clint Eastwood. Unfortunately, the movie was shelved when Fox Studio head Daryl Zunick 
determined that the movie was too grim, a trip to lay on American ticket buyers. It was not until the 21st century that most Americans had a chance to see one of Kabuchi's finest efforts. Interestingly, the Italian distributors decided to use a pull quote from Zunik to promote the movie in their original release trailer. Zunik's comics translated the best Italian western of recent times. A true fucking travesty of modern times. <laughs> yep. Damn. So, while many contemporary counterculture films of the same era as Silence also used the deaths of their protagonists to further their themes, uh, such as Night of the Living Dead or previous pick Easy Rider, most sources, such as author Alex Cox, who was mentioned earlier uh, in his 2009 book, 1000 Ways to Die, agree that Silence offers a different approach to the technique to get across its more cynical message by instead of having the characters killed by another marginalized group of somewhat equal status, uh, Ben getting killed by the posse, also looking for zombies by mistake, uh, things of that nature, uh, they are instead killed by those above it as they are killed by bounty hunters acting on behalf of the law. However, they are only doing so for their own greed. This subverts the audience's expectations that in most Westerns, including some of Corbucci's own work, the good guy and bad guy are clearly defined with good coming out on top and is thought to be meant to show that one can only take on a powerful and corrupt system for so long before realistically losing. So it's been known to many that The Hateful Eight is a spiritual successor to... The Great Silence, mainly for the reasons of the film's setting of pure white snow, violence, and cynicism. However, The Hateful Eight manages to borrow some inspirational ideas throughout the film and use it as its own. One example, the stagecoach scene including two bounty hunters and a sheriff, brought together by fate. Definitely a homage to The Great Silence. For sure. And lastly, we have, according to previously mentioned Alex Cox once more, who cites Corbucci's widow, as well as being confirmed by Corbucci himself in a small lesser-known interview with the German magazine film. Corbucci conceived of the film's more cynical story and the choice to kill the protagonists and the regular townsfolk when he learned of the deaths of Che Guevara and Malcolm X. Uh, contrary to Cox's writing, however, Corbucci also stated that traditionally he had also been thinking of the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy as well, and after its completion, actually dedicated the film to the memories of all of those people. What? Yeah. That makes no fucking sense. <laughs> he, he was thinking of Che Guevara and Malcolm X taking on big systems. So like Che Guevara, because he was... he. Very, he leaned very politically left. He mm -hmm. kind of sympathized with a lot of the like communist um, revolutions that were happening in like South Central America and Cuba. And when Che Guevara was killed down in Bolivia after the revolution and everything, and Malcolm X was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated for taking on the civil rights and everything. He was like, this is fucked up because they're just trying to do what they think is right. And this big, powerful system kills them for it. The Bobby Kennedy one, I don't really get so much, <laughs> but it was... It was specifically stated. I just didn't in, pick in up any of that from this. Like any, like, <laughs> it's relative to any of that. But uh, who knows? If that was, uh, I mean, if that was his reason, more power to Corbucci. Okay, guys, let's talk about it. <laughs> Okay, brody. Favorite performance of the film. Take it away. Of course, I'm going to go with fucking Kinski, aren't I? Man, <laughs> I can see that self. one coming. Hey, everybody saw her <laughs> shoot first, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 
What I like about his character in this, um, he's so fucking mysterious. It's like when when we're watching his performance throughout the film, you see all these different types of emotions on his face, and it's very really it's really hard to read the guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, even because like what he's doing, he's killing criminals, but yet he still seems to be the bad guy in a weird way. I think it's the way that it's directed and implied through. Near the, the end, movie. it looks like he's having fun. He, exactly. he definitely is. I mean, he, he murders the actual law for the town, the actual sheriff, just because he's getting in the way of him profiting off of mm-hmm. killing the bounties. And he has that half-ass smirk the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a really smug fucking smile you'd like to wipe off his face, but yep. it just adds that extra element to the mm-hmm. character where he's yeah. just so confident. Um, and, and if feels like a bit of a double-ended sword where you want to hate him, but yet you can't help agreeing with some of his actions. Well, for me personally, because look, I mean, look, I don't, I, I don't agree obviously with all his actions because he's a racist and he tries to rape women. That's just fucked up. But yeah. in the acts of him killing people, I can somewhat overlook that and agree upon, um, especially when he has to kill criminals. It's all, it's about getting that bounty and he's just a ruthless bounty hunter and will stop nothing to get that reward and I get that. Um, and then in you have someone trying to stop you and kill you for a bounty. So when he returns that to silence, it's silence in that, yeah. Mm. It, it's kind of this, yeah, battle of feeling like of two anti-heroes trying to fucking fight it out, if you know what I mean. Because yeah. by the end of the film, like I really was like, I don't see Kinski as the bad guy, but by the time this i see it as silence come in silence come in you know trying to take out kinski kinski was just being a bounty hunter like silence himself but it was the bigger man who was who was going to get there first which one was going to get taken out first and really in the end that's all that matters yeah exactly. like their reasons for it are null and void it's it's who draws first you know pretty much yep and especially at those times and by the time the ending um happens it's like it just feels so realistic because Silence was about to try and take on 30, 30 men behind Kinski. The opposite no of Django. Yeah, exactly. Right. There was no real happy ending in this, but at the same time, I still didn't feel that Kinski was the villain in this. If you well, know. now that we mention it, like Django wasn't happy either. Like he, at the end of that movie, he just leaves with nothing but smashed hands. Yeah. Like- Where Kinski leaves, he leaves with something in this. Yes. He leaves with his money and but a few it, the men. town's still massacred. I was about to say, they like that's the thing. They also corralled all these innocent townsfolk into a bar and killed them spe- simply because they saw like they saw everything yeah. it was just we now have all these witnesses who saw us bounty hunters who should be on the side of the law kill a sheriff yeah shoot up the town kill a bunch of people kill this guy kill mm-hmm. this random woman they know everything we've done so let's just slaughter them all burn the town and then walk away at the end like that was where i'm like there's no no <laughs> like that's the true like earmark of the villain i think honestly with is just the none of them had to die i get it you know you're fighting off silence and everything because mm. he's gunning for you though he does do that whole thing where he tries to get him to draw silence so kind of gets his own defense. with uh what's his nuts uh, the uh guy who who puts the bounties out what's his name oh um he gets revenge on him for cutting Pollicut. his throat yes yeah Pollicut. yeah uh spoiler alert it's revealed that Pollock cuts the reason that Silence can't talk uh, from whenever he was younger. He has no larynx. We see two flashback sequences, correct? Yes. Yes, 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 we do. Yes. We see him as a kid and his parents get murdered, throat slit. Um, so realistically, when you think about it, they both get what they wanted in the end. It's just that Silence 
um, just falls at the hands of. Gets too big for his britches. Yeah, that's it, pretty much. Especially it's after his hand was burned. Yeah, because it's a gritty take on it, but it's it's like it's meant to be a more realistic portrayal of it. Yes, with that whole thing, it's just he's taking on this big corrupt system because Polycut is meant to be like a corrupt politician lording yes. over the town. The bounties that he's putting out, half of them aren't. And you can almost legit. see it as a political thing because the governor sends the sheriff in there to do the normal type of justice, to do what the law says, where the town is run by capitalistic justice, almost. Yeah, no, specifically. Yes, and that's what's running. And that was, so the sheriff's sent there to replace that. And of course, that's where this confrontation happens. And that's honestly where it all starts. And Silas just kind of happens to get in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. So he kind of puts himself in the middle of that, which kind of, even leads to more of his own detriment in the end because he really didn't need to be there. No, he just ended up happening to be in town around that time. And if Pauline hadn't approached him and been like, Loco killed my husband, I will give you money to go kill Loco. And he just kind of does the whole, well, you know, (laughs) being being mute doesn't exactly say yes, but just goes off and is like, all right, well, I'll just do what I usually do. I'll try to get him to draw to kill me and I'll shoot him. And Loco's, the thing is, is Loco's aware of that. He's onto it. And he's like, no, no, I'm not going to draw first. He's going to have to kill me outright. And then that's kind of, I think, just sort of, it's it's a weakness. It's his main sort of character flaw as he tries to be too righteous about it to his own detriment and it fucking gets him killed. Yeah, yeah but my favorite performance would have to be Frank Wolf as the sheriff. Uh, I love yeah. Kinski. Brody's said enough about that. I would say Jean-Louis, but he doesn't fucking talk and he, he's miming the whole time. And yes, it's a great performance, but I found the sheriff's performance to be comedic, to be impactful, yeah. and for him to actually feel like he was actually trying to make a difference and his intentions were pure, where the other ones were kind of muddied. I think he was the only real guy there that had the right mindset of we need to make a change and this will help and even whenever he told the bounty hunters hey let's just put food out there for them and then things will stop the diplomatic way he wants to take things the best route possible where everybody else just wants to cause mayhem and murder he wants to be the more diplomatic one and Mm -hmm. i think that he does a good way portraying that especially knowing that this wasn't shot with any language in mind it just even adds to that performance even more. But John Louise with his uh, body movements, his mimisms, almost, if you will, really cool stuff. I do like the reveal of the scar as well. Yeah, for yes. sure. Um, yeah, I think, honestly, in the end, I kind of went with Jean-Louis as mine. Okay. I, I admired that he was able to get across as much as he could of this character and establish this character without having to speak. Um, do you agree you could- with the character didn't need to speak for the first two thirds of the movie or the fact that he just didn't answer people when they asked him questions? <laughs> I think he may have been misremembering it because yeah. you find out kind of relatively earlier on than two thirds in that he's mute. Yeah. And that girl, asked I, I remember him to a kill, character uh, saying it. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, they asked, like the girl asked them to kill somebody for him and he just fucking stares at her. Yeah. He stares at her and then she's like, well, you could answer. And he stands up and then he takes this, the scarf off and he's like, I, I literally can't answer you. <laughs> like just pulls it down. But like, you can tell even with just like the look and the body language and everything that even though he hasn't accepted the contract to kill Loco, he's yeah. already accepted to go kill Loco. Cause like you can kind of feel just sort of in the way that, cause you know, they run 
into each other in the saloon and everything and his interactions well, with even everyone prior else, to that you in can, the uh in the like the cart uh there's like a tension between mm-hmm. them just talking yeah like you can tell already the disdain that he's got for him just mm-hmm. by his very nature and the way that he explains of you know oh well i'm just dumping criminals bodies in the back it doesn't matter when the sheriff is like no there's a procedure for this there is a right way to do things and you're not doing it and he's like well i don't care so mm-hmm. uh, who are you and he's like well i'm the sheriff he goes well awesome i still don't care <laughs> i just i don't care i'm making money off oh of this. but i These like you you're These a great sheriff <laughs> yeah <laughs> And like you could tell, you could see the disdain and it already growing without him having to come out right and be like, I don't like that guy or anything like that. And then you can already tell before he's even, you know, taken the money from Pauline that it's like he's gonna, he's gonna yeah. try to, he's gonna take it. Cause you can just sort of tell that like fundamental level of how different they are while still both of them neither really being the good guy. Silence of the End is still also just kind of a freelance gunslinger who more or less is out there just to survive but mm-hmm. would would still also accept to kill a bounty hunter for whatever amount of money. Though I don't think he was actually doing it for the money. I think he was just like, this guy's evil and a piece of shit. I'll go kill him. Yes. Sure. So. so boys, set piece. This film was grandiose at times and other times. It was, oh, that shaving cream on some buildings. Uh, so <laughs> I will have to say just the winter setting and the winter aesthetic alone makes this film super duper unique, as we mentioned early on in the show. Mm-hmm. But it really lends to the bleakness of this film. Just the uh, the cabin scene, which we see mirrored in Tarantino's yeah. Hateful Eight, almost to a T. Uh, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a really cool. That's a really cool setting. I really appreciate that. I want to say the town, but the shaving cream kills it for me. Yeah, it, it's much more. I think because I think they actually did, given it was mostly filmed on location in the Dolomites in a mountain range. Those big, wide exterior outside shots were real snow, and it looked real. It was just that the town, they literally hand-built all those sets. Granted, I think if I read it correctly, they built those sets in the mountains. Mm. It was just that they were much more curated and, and you know, tight, just made. Not as good shaving cream as and everything. It's just, previous Corbucci sets, good. like in Django, where the yeah. town had the scaffolding and the, the cool things going on, you know? All the mud the and the mud. grit. And the, yes. Yeah, this it was is, dirty. This when you compare them and the level that goes into each, like this is definitely the town and this one's not on the same level as that. Even in even in uh, in God Said to Kane, another Kinski Western, that that was that town we see a fuck ton just shot from different angles and it's still cool. So, oh, yeah, it's honestly not for sure. Yeah. But I have to say that cabin that we see that Tarantino uses in his film, too. Uh, that's a really cool set piece in the way it, it's sat with the backdrop of the mountains and the snow and just how it's like isolated is just super duper cool to me. <sighs> And I like the interior of the saloon whenever we're doing the flashback uh, when he shoots yeah. off uh, the dude's thumb. Super cool. Boys? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I mean, I'd probably have to end up going with the saloon, really. I mean, there's some of the most pivotal moments of the film take place in it, especially the uh, very extremely dark, gritty, violent ending <laughs> to the film where it just everything resolves itself in the worst possible way. Um, Just seeing those little, like, I don't know, sort of transitory areas in a town like that in Westerns and just that old-timey sort of setting. Um, I really like the the cabin is great. I honestly just love the wilderness shots and everything. I know it's meant to portray Utah, which would be kind of hard to do with the Dolomites. I've been to Utah, and it's gorgeous, and the film is also gorgeous. It kind of has that nice, like, stark... It's beautiful. It's also so just 
bleak and unyielding at this point because it's set you know during that uh what the blizzard of like 1899 the same one that hateful eight is set in um so it's just everything is snowed in it's dark it's hard to survive and just all of it and it's just dangerous but it's offset in just a really nice way so i'd probably have to say for an individual location the saloon but overall just every external nature wilderness shot was amazing yeah brody what about you well i was gonna go with the saloon um but i think you saw it up quite well there um do you know what i'm actually gonna go with the graveyard that we get at the start of the film it's just set in this very isolated beautiful landscape shot um and the bleakness like tj said with the white behind it the white drop in the background Mm. it just does create just this really atmospheric presence about it that captures that mood and scene for that shot especially with the actress in their mourning over the grave um the way that I mean, it's nothing really special. Uh, it looks like anyone's just made these crosses, but that's what's that's what's awesome about it. It's just how they've captured that realism of just being able to grab two sticks, run the twine around them, and just make rows and rows of this just graveyard. I think it was just a beautiful fucking uh, just yeah set piece. And then we pan to the left and we get the actual hut. So yeah, the hut, and then. Their front yard's just basically this graveyard. It was yeah, it was just really interesting to me to see that play out, but just with that beautiful landscape in the background to really circle around the graveyard, just it just it was fantastic. I thought, yeah, it's it works really well as like almost a contrast to like the graveyard from the Mexican standoff and the good, the bad, and the ugly. Absolutely, you could definitely sort of tell either it was inspired or you know it took a leaf from that book. Even the graveyard in Django was a little bit, yeah. You know, sort of on Mm -hmm. par with this as well super gothic if i remember yes yes absolutely dark had like some bram stoker dracula almost (laughs) energy to it yeah but yes that would be mine because i am a sucker for graveyards anyway so thought i'd go something a little bit different transitioning to favorite shot and scene so i'm gonna start with my shot i will have to say that ultra wide shot of Kinski riding into the mercenary hangout near the end of the film before they return to the town to do the massacre is fucking awesome because it's like from a mountaintop view and you see like Kinski being like small as a fucking ant riding his horse through the uh, winter tundra. It's just a super cool shot. And for scene, I like the bar fight that they have where Kinski just beats the living fuck out of silence. Uh, but I also like, I like the scene wherever he like, uh, Actually, I can't even think. You know what? I'll I'll, I'll circle around to my pick. Brody? Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. So I kind of basically previously just discussed my favorite shot with the beautiful landscape of the graveyard. Yeah. I think that was just a massive fucking standout for me. Uh, but I will discuss my favorite scene. So the whole loco needing to take a dump scene where he tricks the sheriff yes. to untie <laughs> him so he can shit, but then really dig up one of his bounties that he's buried under the snow. And then he, you know, he pulls out the rifle, mm. not to shoot the sheriff, but to make him walk out on a frozen lake yep. and have him fall through just to, just to really torment and torture him for what he's done to him previously to that. He didn't even want to shoot him. It's just so brutal from fucking Kinski's character to even do that, you know? I think it could it's- be a plausible deniability thing too. Like, I... He- they find his body while well, he fell through the ice and he froze to death. He's there's no bullets in him or anything. But well, that's that's true. I was also thinking about that scene. Maybe there was actually no bullets in there, and it was just basically Kinski's powerful performance of you know 
mind fucking him and going, you better fucking go or I will shoot you. <laughs> yeah, no bullets in this motherfucker. Um, I'll also uh, give an honourable mention, uh, the flashbacks in, as into why Silence earned the name Silence. Um, it's actually really fucking dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously implied to like what the sheriff did to him as a kid. Um, so, yeah. Or I mean, there's also... Polycut. The, the- Polycut's like the... Polycut. Mayor? Yeah. He was like running like the bank or something. It was weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like a political boss of some some kind. Douchebag. Yes. (laughs) What about you guys? Who are we going to go with? Go with you, Mr. Bears? Are you thought of yours yet or? Yeah, I do. I was going to mention whenever the uh, I got to take a shit scene because it is funny as hell. And like I said, the bar (laughs) fight between Silence and Loco is pretty damn cool. But how about the uh, the well shot love bacon scene between him and uh, what is it? Paulina. Pauline. Yeah. yeah. Very sexy. Very sexy. Wasn't expecting it. Right? Tastefully <laughs> shot. We get it like a, a top of a butt crack. Tastefully shot. And then we get some boobage. Uh, did we see boobage in Django when he banged the uh, brothel lady? I don't think so. We just got the afterthought of him saying the super machismo stuff to her. Yeah. 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 I don't think there was any real like nudity, nudity in Django. Yeah. You know what? Tip the hat to Corbucci for shooting an actual tasteful love scene and it not being like just for <laughs> for kicks. And whenever yeah. we do see some of the, like the uh, rapey scenes, they don't go full on. It's just more like intense feel up and then they get stopped before they go f- full on. And, you know, I much more respect a director who goes that route instead of just, you know what, let's just shock him. Even though this guy definitely does Irreversible. that. Irreversible. With, with, okay, yeah, Gaspar Noe. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Uh, he does use that in other ways with like the mutilations in this movie with the thumbs and the throat slit and yeah. all that stuff. It, this movie's brutal with, the, again, burned hands and shit. But he, he does hold back whenever they show women. And I like that. This, again, Kinski does shoot a girl, but she shot first. <laughs> you all saw her shoot first. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to pick a favorite scene in this film for me. It's, I know. They're all so grandiose. The, end, the opening scene, whenever he blasts all those people away, also really cool. Yeah. Uh, again, his fucking weapon. His weapon is the coolest weapon I've fucking seen so far. Ah, just It is a sick revolver. It is. It the is fact really that cool. The, uh, like the shoulder grip, like the, the shoulder thing is also like the holster. Mm. So fucking cool. He's not actually pulling it off his hip as he's. Yeah. Yeah. And then he can combine it. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. Badass. Yeah. So I think we had the same favorite shot uh, of Kitsky riding out yeah. towards the outlaws. Um, either that or actually seeing uh whenever you know they're riding out that and loco it's it's uh it's the outlaws and then it's the wide shot of just the sheer amount of them all there on the side of that mountain out in the snow uh-huh. and just kind of seeing how outnumbered they are and i am a sucker for wide shots oh, like that you know what we haven't <laughs> mentioned kinski's first bounty that we see when he drags the dude through the snow those awesome oh, shots yeah. of him chasing him through the woods this the framing of that with the horse mm-hmm. super fucking rad it is and it, Man, it's like that Kioma scene, but snow. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah, <laughs> I say it, it almost feels like it pays homage to so many other westerns mm-hmm. that also came before it, and then it just flips it on its head and does that contrast just just by placing it in the setting of being in the middle of this giant blizzard. Yeah, which is probably you know why Tarantino used the same thing for Hateful Eight later on. Well, the the blizzard just further isolates the characters and adds to mm-hmm. everything. Uh, again, there's that. There's a lot of the thing elements in the Hateful Eight as well. And I yes, think that's one of them. I did see a lot of those comparisons as well. 
when doing the research for this episode, a lot of people were talking about how it was similar to the thing in that regard. Um, I think for favorite scene, just from how different it is to like every other Western we've seen, just the bleakness of it, probably going to have to go with the townsfolk getting massacred at the end, the, the ending scene. Wow. And them riding off into the sunset away. And it just yeah. like, because it's just, are they really going to do this? Are they really? Come on. No. I mean, it's gone far. It's been gritty, but oh, okay. Oh, they are. <laughs> like, and that just sort of the shock of it, which I'm not usually one to go for shock value uh, as like my favorite scenes or moments in, in a film. I tend to not really like shock value if it's for shock value's sake. Mm-hmm. Like it's just there to throw the audience off. If I think it actually lends itself well to telling the story or at least moving or getting across the theme of the film, um, which I think in this that scene does. And I think it does very well of just like this is the way things are like this is just kind of how life is going to progress from now on. Sometimes the good guy doesn't win. You know, you're you're China. You're forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown mm-hmm. kind of, you know, so. I just I like when that's really well executed, and I think that this was very well executed, a pun very much intended. Well done. So, boys, favorite effect or death? There are a metric shit ton <laughs> of deaths in this film, as John Louis said earlier, and they are all in Corbucci fashion. Uh, the effects, again, just massive squib city, like, mm-hmm. and that quintessential Western Italian bright red blood. That we see also in the jolly of the time. Ah, uh, fuck. So many cool deaths, but... I know. Is Silas's death can be considered? Because that boy's put through the fucking ringer. It's true. It's a death. He, it's a it death. is the most grandiose, I think, of, of any other... Like, it's the most sort of artfully done, I would say, yeah. out of any of them. Um, Most being just kind of brutal and realistic beaten burned and uh, shot to hell yeah whereas like i think the other more standout ones that i can think of would be the sheriffs of course as brody described earlier for mm-hmm. i could pick that for the same reasons as why brody picked it as his favorite scene the other one i think that stands out the most to me is probably the one where um oh paulica was a lawyer that was it because this is that they trick the one criminal's mother into inviting him back to the house because she's like the the lawyer is here to see you and he mm-hmm. opens the door to see he's, he's now trapped in there with loco and Polycut, and they just gun him down in front of his mom and then go ah, it's our job and then lug him outside and drop him in the in the ice <laughs> like uh what a brutal motherfucker seriously <laughs> But I'd say for I'd, I'd say for effect, um, at the start of the film when Silence shoots off the thumbs of the bounty hunters, you see them yeah. just hanging there by ligaments like in a brief three seconds. Uh like TJ said with the blood, that Italian blood, it looks fucking fantastic on the white shaving cream slash snow or whatever the fuck it was. Um, I think it just adds that more element to those scenes. It just fills up the scenes with some creative cinematically uh, shots, if you know what I mean. Like, there's just nothing too special about it, but it just adds that effect for it. Um, There are a lot of deaths in this film that we don't actually get to see. There's a lot of just fucking gunshots. Um, I'd have to agree with what TJ was saying there before with Silence's death. Maybe it was probably the most effective because it was more cinematically shot to give us you know, the emotional ride of just grief because we've just been on this journey with this character for so long. We've got to really, you know, show that to the audience and give them this fucking emotional ride of uh, death. I think, yeah, I 
Oh, they'd be mine too. <laughs> That's fair. We talked a lot about story already up to this point, and it's definitely the yeah. bleakest, without a doubt, macaroni western that we've done to date. Uh, yeah, we can see <laughs> yeah. where Tarantino took cues from this for the Hateful Eight, especially with Ennio Morricone coming back. Super fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, that cabin scene, like I said earlier, almost directly lifted. And like Brody said, with the carts and the dead body, like, come on now. Uh, <laughs> Hateful Eight. I mean, uh, another good thing to mention with the performance of the sheriff the scene where he wakes up and the dead body's hanging there and he gets scared shitless because he wakes up oh, and yeah. dude staring at him <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah that's a hearty laugh but this movie is such a stand out film especially for the era the setting i'm not really sure of a lot of winter westerns with other than like white fang uh this is super duper cool i love kinski he is balls to the wall in this. And like like we mentioned earlier, that, that smirk he has the whole time that makes you want to punch him in the face just makes it so mm-hmm. much better. The fact that he's kind of like not taking anybody seriously because he like runs that bitch and he knows it. And we're rooting for silence the whole fucking movie. And then just to be completely gutted at the end with this mm-hmm. ultra cinematic death where everybody else is kind of done in real quick. His is drawn out over like eight fucking minutes. And it's... It's fucking gross. And then to see him massacred alongside all the people he was trying to protect, it's fucked. But it's dark. It is dark. And but that that's Corbucci for you. And mm-hmm. nobody does it better than Corbucci. And when it comes to Westerns, like nothing comes close to Italian Westerns. It's it's the best. Macaroni Westerns, spaghetti Westerns, whatever you want to fucking call it. This is the flavor you want. Uh I love a good American Western, but they just don't have the balls to go where the Italians do. And I think that that definitely is a detriment to some of those films. All that and the uh, racist depiction of Indians. Nick? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, the American ones of the time, I definitely don't like. I do. I do adore the two Westerns that Tarantino has made in more recent years. Yes, though. those are amazing. And it's because he grew up on spaghetti Westerns yes. and cites all of these movies as as his inspiration for making those. And he's basically just like, I just want to make spaghetti Westerns like the ones I grew up watching. Yeah. He takes, and he just cues from Margariti, Corbucci and, and uh, Leone. He's super into those people. And you definitely see that influence in all of his film and not just his Westerns. I mean, yes, everything from kill bill to pulp fiction, reservoir dogs, reservoir dogs as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So anybody else want to talk about story, Brody, anything you want to add to what we said already? Um, I mean, you guys hit the nail on the head. I, I mean, look, as grim as the ending was for this film, I think both Loco and Silence, uh, you know, like I said earlier, practically got what they wanted in the end. And when you think about it, like just just when you think about it, like the director was able to really structure this story around two great characters. And it's I, I just love the premise and how they were flushed out, the characters, because um, Loco and Silence just stealing the show, playing this cat and mouse game between the two. Yeah. Really knows how to capture that tension. Um, I think Kabuchi is an absolutely fantastic director in the Western genre, um, especially spaghetti Westerns. And every time yeah. I hear spaghetti Westerns, I go directly to Kabuchi. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, not just because we've done him for on the, on the show, like it's just because he's just so well known and regarded in that genre. So it's always the Sergios. Yeah. It's always Leone or Kabuchi. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's it. Um, but yeah, I look, I, I love the story. It was, I think it was fucking great. It's great to see this, and I love just the brutal ending that it was. It just it just felt real to me. Like not every story is a happy ending. That's right. Mm-hmm. This is life, you know. 
bad shit happens yeah. and not always the good guy that you want to win uh wins uh, and sometimes it's better to just leave a situation alone than it is to get involved and that's a decision that a lot of people have to face every day it was me being involved in this situation that it help or hurt uh this ultimately led to his demise so uh you make that decision for yourself uh Impact and takeaways. Definitely want to show you guys maybe a different type of Corbucci Western, maybe like the mercenary, because that's more comedic. But that's Franco coming back to work with them. So, yeah, we know how well those guys work together. Always down for some more Nero. Yes. Uh, This movie... I, it's just going to make me want to go find more winter westerns, honestly. I'm going to go out and search for more of that type of aesthetic going on, and hopefully we can find more of that sort of thing because it, it's definitely few and far between when it comes to uh, this genre when it comes to the winter setting. But uh, yeah, this is definitely utilized to the fullest extent here, and i like to see it more. Uh, nothing really I can really say impact. I mean, it was really lost in the American audience up until recently until we get this amazing uh, restoration and it's released by film movement here not too long ago. So honestly, if you have the ability to go watch this movie, do it. It is one of the best spaghetti westerns ever made and you can clearly where see where it influenced so many directors that are active today boys anything you want to finish up yeah i mean it it is an interesting concept uh really the only two i think what was the other one you mentioned the the uh wolf uh white what fang are, white fang okay yes. um I think, and that um, is the first the adaptation other... of the book okay Yes, because I think the only other winter western I've ever seen, aside from this, is Hateful Eight, which took direct inspiration from this. Which I guess, yeah. I mean, yeah, impact and takeaway from that. White Fang has um, Franco Nero in it, but it has a dogfight in it, which is fucking brutal. Oh shit! It's White Fang. Uh, yeah, and no, I think there's fair. a bear in it too. I can't remember. Okay, damn. So there's one thing that I, I I'm thinking about now. Um, that this might just be an observation about spaghetti westerns as compared to the American ones of the mm-hmm. time that I didn't really think about this before. There was a cert- there was a code in U.S. film industry for a long time. I do not know if it was active at this point because because of Chinatown specifically, where if there was any sort of bad guy character. You basically could not tell the story in the U.S. because if there was any character who was doing anything deemed morally like reprehensible, uh-huh. they had to lose. Uh, they ha- they they had to lose in the end. Otherwise, your film did not like. I I think it was the Hayes Code, the one that was like developed in the 30s because the 20s they were just making what whatever, and then they had the new obscenity laws and everything. So they were yeah. freaking out with the whole moral panic, and they made the Hayes Code. I don't know if it was still active in '68. Because I know Chinatown was late 60s as well, and that was very famous for having the bad guy gets away ending and being one of the first. I wonder if Spaghetti Westerns were able to do this because they just didn't have that restriction that Italy just didn't have that sort of a code, whereas the yeah, U.S. They did. Didn't, yeah, they went all out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. And I guess the only other real observation that I could take away, and it is from Hateful Eight, I didn't think about this before, um, the whole with silence just getting... Uh, his target to draw first before he shoots. Sam Jackson's character in The Hateful Eight only can fill, kills that ex-Confederate general by standing there and giving him that story about his son to get him pissed off. So he pulls and then he kills him in the chair. Yeah. Whenever he draws. The Han Solo and I, treatment. Yeah. I did not think about that before until earlier when we were <laughs> discussing this. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I missed that the first time. So we ready to rate this bad boy? I am if you are. Okay, so this week's rating is Burn Mute Gunslingers with a Hankering for Recently Widowed Women out of five. (laughs) (laughs) They get better each episode. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see how chuffed TJ is about that one. (laughs) 
So, Brody, start us off with the rating. Right. Well, let me see. I'm probably going to have to go with a, do you know what I really enjoyed this? I'm going to go with a 4.4. Nick? I will give this fine film a 4.1. I'm going with 4.5, and that is an LCE score of 4.3 out of 5 Bermute gunslingers with a hankering for recently widowed women out of 5. That's a pretty good score. It is indeed. That's yeah, Absolutely. that's pretty decent. Did it get more than Django or that would have to be for the listeners to go back and check because I don't keep track of that. <laughs> God damn. We probably should though. That'd be pretty good. Cool. It is all good. It's but all good, speaking of episodes, what's the next one, Nick? That would be my pick, and it would be the twenty twelve hit Troll Hunter. Ooh, Ooh. Uh, that's found footage? Uh it is. Mm. It is one of the finer found footage films. I'm also folklore, technically. It is. Yes. It is. It's about trolls. trolls. <laughs> Fucking A. Never I'm, seen it. So I'm keen as fuck to see that one. I, I think you'll like it. Don't think I've seen it either. So this will be a first time viewing. And let's see if we can break ratings for you. Uh, it was one of those films uh, that a friend and I just simply stumbled across at his house, surfing through, looking for movies uh, back in high school, and just ended up really, really enjoying it. Ah, fair mm-hmm. enough. Well, I think that's been all we have to say about 1968's The Great Silence. Thank you for joining me in this conversation, boys. Thank you, listeners out there, for listening. It was truly a pleasure to talk this film and to discuss it with you all. This has been the pod boss, TJ Bowser. And I also want to let you know that if you've noticed, a second show has shown up in the RSS feed. Uh, called Pilot Parlay, that is Brody and I talking about TV pilots. Uh, we did the first episode this past week after Nick couldn't do an episode with us due to a power outage. So we yeah. recorded an episode on 1992's Renegade featuring Lorenzo Lamas and Kathleen Kinnamont. Yes. Uh, if you want to listen to that, just look on your normal LCE feed and it will pop up there as a bonus episode. So go there, enjoy, and let us know what you think. So to continue my sign off, this has been the pod boss, TJ Bowser. Sign off. This is your DKB saying I'll catch you motherfuckers next week. Slick Nick saying thank you for listening. See you all next week as well.
Hey, Brody. <laughs> Yo. It's the Frenchman. The Frenchman. Remember what you watched the I'm other trying, day? Right, I'm sorry. I'm trying to pick up what you're putting down. The, lin- <laughs> kind of the lynch short. Oh, fuck. <laughs> hey. Oh. 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 <laughs> you're supposed to respond with, what the hell is that? Uh, <laughs> what the hell is that? My bad. Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> that short what was great. Say? It is. Drink, have, have a shot every time he says, what the hell is that? <laughs> Alcohol poisoning and death, dude. Uh, have a shot <laughs> every time minutes. the porn shucker says, "I know, <laughs> I know," <laughs> which we are going to be fucking doing. I'm, I'm saying this now. Sorry to derail this shit. We are definitely fucking doing the corn shucker, Nick. We are going to get you okay. the footage some fucking how. All right. <laughs> We are definitely doing that shit. <laughs> sorry to sorry to get a bit. No, you're good. I'm just gonna man. open the mail one day and have a burned CD in an envelope <laughs> that just says corn shucker on it. Like I can already tell. <laughs> It'll be just a picture of a corn with a shucker. <laughs> Postcard of <laughs> stalks of corn. Uh.